You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Redemption Church. It's good to see you. I'm Pastor Sean. For those who are visiting, it's great to have you here. One of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, You're... If you're a regular attender here or a member, you're used to seeing me preach. Um, just so you kind of things going on, you know the game plan for the next few weeks. I'm actually going to take a couple weeks off from preaching to focus on some other things and get some personal rest as well. But that's actually a really good thing, and I've learned this over the years of pastoral ministry. And it's this. There are many competent and faithful voices in this church men who are faithful to preach. Uh, Yes, I could prepare another message, but I think it's good for you to hear from other men as well. And so, as I said, over the years, I've seen that to be quite a benefit for our church because this is not the Sean Powers show. Never was, is not now, never will be the Sean Powers show. So I'm thankful to God for uh, that he has brought other men who can faithfully preach and uh, deliver God's word to us. So that's what you're going to have this morning from Dean Klein. And then next week, Pastor Rob will be preaching as he'll put a bow on the Sermon on the Mount, and then you'll hear from Logan Cain the following week, and then we'll start a new sermon series after that. So I just kind of wanted to give you the lay of land. I was out of town this last week as well, and many of you were praying for me as I was doing some denominational responsibilities. And so I just want to thank you for your prayers. I was, as they say in politics, I was shaking hands and kissing babies. (laughs) It's kind of what was going on, but it was a good time. It was 80 and sunny, and then I came back here. <laughs> so that, that happened, but I'm grateful to be back. I, like, I don't mind traveling, but I love being home. I love being with my family, and I love being with my church family. So all that said, just so you have some context of what's been going on, what's happening, what is going on, I actually now want to invite Dean to come up and preach us the word. Well, good morning, and... Uh, welcome, all you who are visiting, all you who brave the messy highways, especially if you live where, where we do on Beaver Drive. They never touch it. Um, so it's good to have you here. And I, I want to just pray briefly um, before I preach. So join me in prayer. 
Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Oh God in heaven, it is my prayer that you help me as I, in my inadequacy, in my fallenness, in my sinfulness, to convey the words that we need to hear this morning regarding who you are. In all candor and honesty, none of us even scarcely begin to know the infinite God, and yet you've revealed yourself to us, and so I pray that you will help me to be faithful to the text as we strive to humbly come before you and know God. In Christ's name, amen. I did pray a little bit from the, the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. It is, in fact, if you asked me, uh, what is my Mount Rushmore of hymns, Holy, Holy, Holy would certainly be on that list. And I think that the writer of that hymn captured something from the scriptures. And that is that this theme of God's holiness runs through and through the scriptures. In fact, the very first song recorded in the scriptures in Exodus 15, 11, describes God as one who is majestic and holiness in holiness. Who is like unto you? The vital song of the Bible in Revelation chapter 15, verse 4, recorded by the Apostle John, says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you... You alone are holy. So the theme runs throughout the scriptures, and it cannot be overstated the importance and significance of this particular theme. In fact, we just came out of the Sermon on the Mount, and it was a priority of the prayer that Jesus taught us. Jesus himself, who taught us to pray, and the very first petition he said to pray is this, hallowed be thy name. Let your name, O oh God, be regarded as holy. And that particular theme and understanding of God was shaped in my life growing up as my parents took me to church week after week. I gained an understanding of this holy and mysterious and transcendent God, and it shaped my conscience. But in the 1980s, as a young Christian, I... I crossed the path of a theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul and his lectures on the holiness of God. And these lectures that he taught on the holiness of God set their mark on my life that would never leave me the same again. It, was, it impacted my whole understanding of God. It added theological depth to that which I grew up with. It added substance. And one of the things that Sproul said was, that the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian will grapple with, for it is basic to our whole understanding of God and Christianity. I would assert that it is one of the great problems we face today. And I would say that the, the great need of the church is to have a vision and understanding of the holiness of God. In fact, one writer, David Wells, wrote in the 1990s, he wrote a series of books. One of them was called God in the Wasteland, and he said this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially 
upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. One would wonder what he would even write today. Anyway, there is great confusion and there's difficulty in understanding the concept of the holiness of God. For, for instance, there are basically two meanings in the scriptures regarding the holiness of God. One we can kind of get. It's the secondary meaning. And it has to do with God's moral purity, his, his righteousness. And, of course, 1 Peter 1.16 says, be holy even as God in heaven is holy. So we understand that concept. In that sense, we are to be morally pure and morally righteous. However, there is a primary meaning of the word holiness ascribed to God alone. And that is, it is his transcendence. There is a sense that God is holy in which we cannot be. The word literally means to separate, to cut above something, to exceed all usual limits. It has the idea of God's transcendence in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. He is above us, far beyond. John Piper in, writes this regarding God's holiness. He says that God's holiness is his utterly unique divine essence. What he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be, in the end, language runs out in the word holy. We have sailed to the world's end in the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. In the early 20th century, a theologian by the name of Rudolf Otto, he was a German theologian and an anthropologist, and he studied this concept of holiness, and he wrote a very helpful and fascinating book called The Idea of the Holy. And he coined the phrase or the term mysterium tremendum, which literally means terrifying mystery to describe this, this the idea of the holy. And in his studies, he, de there were, he, de he determined that there were many responses to this idea of the holy across cultural boundaries, many different responses. But the one thing that was consistent was that this concept was strange to people. It was something we were unable to fathom. It was something mysterious but powerful. And in his studies, he concluded that this idea of the holy causes one to be conflicted. In essence, it attracts us and yet repels us. It fascinates and yet it terrifies. The great writer C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this a little bit in his wonderful work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that story, and many of you are familiar with it, there is the Messiah-like figure, the Christ figure, Aslan the lion. And, of course, you have Edmund and Peter and Susan and Lucy. They all embark into this land of Narnia. 
And they come across the path of these characters named Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver. And they inquire about this Aslan figure that they've never met. And they're, they're excited and yet nervous about meeting him. And, and Lucy asks the question, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And I think that's when we talk about God as holy, there's a sense that we embark on holy ground and we find that he is not safe, that he is not easily tamed, but he is good. So let's look at the text in Isaiah 6 because Isaiah would find in the 8th century B.C., he would meet with an unsafe God that would change his life forever. And to give a little background, it, in this text, we're in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was, in fact, a very important king in the history of Judah. He actually began his reign at the age of 16 and reigned for an amazing 52 years. He was generally a righteous king, and his contributions were many. He fortified the city of Jerusalem. He extended Judah's borders. He carried out some of the last, most lasting significant reforms in the land, and yet he suffered a tragic fall toward the end of his life and violated his own ethical standards and tried to engage in the role of a priest, and he died in isolation and disgrace. And in the midst of that struggle, Isaiah was called to be a prophet. When we think of prophet, we think of God's messenger. We think of the watchman, the one that speaks for God, the conscience of the nation. And Isaiah has often been called the prince of prophets because of his gifts, his knowledge, his writing. More than any other prophet, God gave Isaiah more messianic knowledge and prophecy concerning the coming King Jesus Christ. In fact, in Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Those are the words of the Prince of Prophets. He gave us the servant songs of Isaiah 53 and 57, 54, excuse me, and his ministry would expand over a period of 60 years through the span of four kings. It was an amazing ministry. The, the name Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation. And in Isaiah 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. While the nation is in a panic, and Isaiah goes to the temple, and many commentators think that Isaiah gets a glimpse 
into the inner sanctum of heaven. Isaiah doesn't see Uzziah on the throne. Isaiah doesn't see Hezekiah on the throne. He doesn't see David on the throne. He sees Adon, Adonai, that's the word Lord there, which is the, the most exalted title of God in the Old Testament. He sees Adonai on the throne. And the point there is that kings, rulers, world leaders, dictators come and go, but Adonai is on the throne. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Psalm 92. And he sees Adonai seated on the throne, which demonstrates his majesty, his sovereignty. God is in control. Nothing is taking him by surprise, not even Uzziah's death. He's assigning, designing things, whatsoever comes to pass. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But there's a sense that this throne is authoritative as well. The throne of God is God's right to rule the world. This throne, which is authoritative as he is Lord, means that God has the right to rule over our lives, whether we like it or not. He is the king, and he is arrayed in majesty. The train of his robe filled the temple. It is an incomparable splendor. Psalm 8.1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, for you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And notice in verse 2, this, these interesting beings. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. There is continuous action from the seraphim. They are ministering before the throne of God day and night, they are covering their eyes. They're covering their feet. They're flying. The train of the robe fills the, fills the temple that there's no place to stand. And the anatomy is fascinating. And, my, and they have to cover their eyes from the piercing glory of God, which is reminiscent of a passage in Exodus 33, where we encounter the story of Moses now, Moses had many encounters with God. He saw God in the burning bush. He saw God perform miracles in Egypt as God delivered the nation of Israel. He saw God part the Red Sea. And we get to Exodus 33, and Moses continues to boldly pray. He's interceding for his people. And it reaches to a point where Moses prays perhaps the boldest prayer in all of Scripture, he says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, God gently, gently corrects Moses. He answers his prayer. Remember, God is unsafe, but he is good. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand 
on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then you get toward a later time where Moses comes down from the mountain and the, the glory is so radiant on his face just from a backward glimpse of the glory of God, just a, a glimpse that Aaron and the people were terrified by the piercing glory that was from Moses' face as he had this glimpse of the glory of God. Look at verse 3, because as fascinating as the anatomy is, the message of the angels is what is significant. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The word Lord there is a different Hebrew word from verse 1, which is Adonai in verse 1. The word Lord there is God's covenant name, Yahweh, that he gave to the people of Israel. But the, the point here is that there is this rhetorical device called verbal repetition. And in the Bible, what you will find is that no other description of God is used to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8... It was quoted earlier, we have the same device, verbal device. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come, which stresses emphasis and importance. And so we must not think of holiness as one attribute of God among many. The writer Thomas Brooks has stated that God's holiness and nature are not two things. They are but one. God's holiness is his nature, and God's nature is his holiness. So when we think of God's love, we think of God's holy love. When we think of God's justice, we think of God's holy justice. So the repetition is demonstrating emphasis and importance, but I think... Here in this verse, there is a Trinitarian emphasis. When the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 they are crying out to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I get that from passages like John chapter 12, verse 41, where the apostle John writes in his gospel that Isaiah beheld the glory of Jesus. I get that from Acts chapter 28, verse 25, where Luke records that the Holy Spirit is present here commissioning Isaac as a prophet and commissioning Isaac on what to speak on behalf of God. So there is a Trinitarian emphasis and the triune holy God that is being worshipped here by the seraphim 
we find is also causing the foundations of the thresholds to shake. Look at verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The seraphim have the sense, the good sense, to use their wings to cover their eyes from the piercing glory of a holy God. And the inanimate objects have this good sense to tremble before the Holy One. A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago that worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Look at the response of Isaiah in verse 5. He's catching all this. He's seen these seraphim cry out to God in praise, the choir of praise, with pure lips. And he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a righteous man. Isaiah was the prince of prophets. When Isaiah spoke, he spoke for God. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah pronounced a series of woes on the nation. But here, he is a pronouncing woe on himself, woe that a, which is a curse, a judgment, judgment on himself. He says, I am lost. Other translations say he's undone, he's ruined, he's coming apart at the seams. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips, yet Isaiah, when you speak, God talks. Perhaps he had in mind what Jesus said. For out of the mouth proceedeth the evil that is within our heart. But as long as our gaze is fixed on the ground, we think that we are safe. It is easy to compare ourselves with others. We can be like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 who thanks God he's not like the tax gatherer next to him who can't even lift up his head to heaven but beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In the presence of a holy God, our sin is exposed. We, we are undone. Even the great apostle Paul would write these words as he compared his own life to the holy God, law of God, which is a reflection of who God is in his holiness. Paul would say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The 16th century theologian John Calvin wrote these words. Hence, that dread and amazement with which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld 
the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And the testimony of Scripture is filled with these accounts. Do you remember Job? Righteous Job. Righteous Job. A blameless man. And toward the end of Job, in Job chapter 42, Job just basically had a, for lack of a better way to say it, a verbal beatdown from God. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he, he proceeds to speak to Job over the course of three or four chapters. And then we get to Job 42. Job, a man who knew God and a a man that God commended, said these words. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Exposure to the holiness of God will lead to brokenness, will lead to humility, will lead to an honest assessment of ourselves before God, and will lead to repentance. That was Job's response. The prophet Habakkuk said when he encountered God, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. The Apostle John in Revelation 1, 7, when he saw the glorified risen Christ, it says he fell at his feet like a dead man. There's the account of the disciples in the boat, Mark chapter 4. The disciples are in the boat, it's the Sea of Galilee, and a storm has come, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples are terrified. It says in the text, in some translations, they were afraid. And they wake Jesus up and say, Master, do something or we perish. And Jesus awakens and he speaks to nature. He speaks to the storm. And he quiets it, quiets it with the word of his mouth. Silences it. Then it says in the text that the disciples said, what manner of man is this? We have no category. We are unfamiliar with this other, that which is other, that which is foreign to us. For who is this that even the sea, the wind, obey him? They were, and then it says in the text something very interesting. And then it says that they were exceedingly afraid. Mysterium tremendum. What is worse, to have the storm outside of your boat or to have the God of the universe in your boat? There's the story of Peter. Peter was fishing one day. They were fishing all night, and they caught nothing. And Jesus says, put the net to the right side of the boat. And then it seems like all of the fish of the Galilee Sea, 
pops into the net. It's a miracle. What would you do? What would you say? Would you sign Jesus to a contract like some might? Uh, you know, Peter was a businessman. He was a fisherman. What was Peter's response? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In essence, what he's saying to Jesus is, please leave. I cannot stand it. But to, to Peter's everlasting joy, Jesus did not leave him. Nor did God leave Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 6. Isaiah has pronounced judgment on himself. He is undone. He is lost. He is in the dust. Does God leave him there? Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with thongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Or another translation says, your sins are forgiven. God does not leave Isaiah to wither in the dust. God is not safe. He is holy, but he is good. And Isaiah experiences a severe mercy. This was a painful act of cleansing. We don't have time to get into all the details, but Isaiah's wound was being cauterized. The dirt of his mouth was being burned. This is not cheap grace. Isaiah's repentance was real. And his liberation, the words that he experienced, your sins are forgiven, were words that were life and good news to one who had just pronounced an anathema, a curse on himself, suddenly now hearing from God, your guilt is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. No wonder Isaiah would say in the next few verses, here am I, send me. Oh, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Psalm 32, 1. Isaiah would later write in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high, or excuse me, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity from everlasting to everlasting, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's the transcendence of God. He is above and beyond us, other, holy. But notice the next section there. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted 
and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You may be sitting here in a period of despair or you feel the weight of your own sin. You may be in a dry period in your spiritual life. Isaiah invites you right here in Isaiah 15 to come to a God who, yes, is holy. Yes, is unsafe, but he's also good. And he revives the heart of the contrite. He revives the spirit of the lowly. There is no possible escape from the holiness of God. Each and every one of us will stand before the holy throne of God one day. And the only place of salvation is to be hidden, for us to be hidden in Christ. He's the cleft of the rock. To be hidden in Christ and covered with his righteousness on the basis of faith. And Jesus invites each and every one of us to come to him and receive his holiness and experience his forgiveness through the blood of his cross that the wrath of God cannot find us. And all God's people said, amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.